1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joe Kroller. It is my again super distinct pleasure to welcome Micah Alpa, and uh, he's got a great book out called "Friends of Freedom: The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions," put out by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the show, Micah. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Hey, Micah, um, why don't we just start out this conversation with uh, telling folks who is Michael Alpa?
1: Well, I'm an academic historian of the French Revolution by training. I did my PhD studying with Timothy Tackett at UC Irvine. And then after I finished my degree, I branched out and really became fascinated at or with connections between the different revolutions of the 18th century, which led me to this big book project on the the, the group that I consider to be the Friends of Freedom. Uh, also, I teach at the University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg, and presently I'm working on another book project as well on the People's Revolution of 1789, taking a lot of those trends that I learned about in my big book project and applying them to one pivotal year of the French Revolution.
2: And and you wrote a book uh, about the French Revolution, but those who were, um, I don't know, talking about peace or peaceful protest rather than violence, what was that book about?
1: Yeah, that book's called Nonviolence in the French Revolution, Political Demonstrations in Paris, 1787 to 1795. And it looks at how over 90% of the protest marches in the capital never used physical violence at any given point along their routes. And I use that to contest a lot of the accepted or previously accepted narratives about the relationship between French revolutionary protest and violence. So rather than the French Revolution mostly being about blood and guts, I argue that most protesters really set out to develop a spirit of fraternity and collaboration with authorities and only reluctantly, often due to confrontations with the forces of order where they sometimes pulled into acts of political violence.
2: But blood and guts, those get the ratings, right? (laughs) Sometimes. But
1: as I look at in Friends of Freedom as well, the revolutionary spirit of fraternity and universalism has also had a very long shelf life to it.
2: Uh, Absolutely. When did you first get started um, with your interest in history in general?
1: History was always my best subject growing up, and even though I actually started out at Northern Arizona University in the year 2000 as a journalism student, I really just happened to take a French history course as a general elective the second semester that I was there, and it pulled me into the subject. So I became a history major in August of 2001, and amidst all of the controversies, shall we say, of the 9-11 era to follow. History seemed a great way for critiquing that present moment by looking at just how contingent a lot of the oftentimes negative trends that were occurring then really were. And it seems to offer different histories of the possible that perhaps we could use to help construct a better world. So, In many respects, I consider all of my books, at least in some degree, to really come out of those early experiences and really that early searching for um, alternative and perhaps better histories to build from.
2: Um, And I I have to say, in reading um, your book, Friends of Freedom, um, I am impressed with the amount of work that went into this. Um, It's in Atlantic history, ladies and gentlemen, and often the problems with Atlantic history is it tends to be very theoretical or a turn to the literary, Um, uh, but this is not. This is you in the archives everywhere, you know, France, the UK, the United States, Ireland. What was that like, all that travel? It was great
1: fun. Every summer from 2010 to 2018, I spent between one and three months on the road, which included long stays in London, Paris, Washington, D.C., Dublin, etc., as well as weeks-long train rides out across the countryside or car and bus trips around the eastern U.S., Getting deep into the archives and collecting things that I was able to use, kind of as you described, to try and build a history of this era from the bottom up. So like yourself, Joe, I was very, um, very disenchanted with uh, a lot of the top down histories that either focused on a few theoretical ideas or at most got into a few key figures like, say, Thomas Paine or the Marquis de Lafayette. This, I hope, is something different, uh, an attempt to show how the biggest social movements of the era interacted with one another.
2: Uh, Not only is it different, it's refreshing. Um, There's a lot of Atlantic history out there that honestly could go back into the archives and and really prove what it is that they're saying, put their money in their mouth, so to speak. and, And you just do it. You come through. This is a blast. This book is just... A blast. Thank you so much for this work uh, that you put together. I appreciate it. Anyway, yeah. you're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Joe Crowder and I'm speaking with um, Micah Alpa and uh, his book, Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Micah, I want to start with um, a guy that you and I know extremely well, a historical figure that both you and I know extremely well, and that's John Wilkes. And and I bring this up because uh, oftentimes when I speak of the American Revolution, I start with with the Saint George's Massacre, uh, and I start with John Wilkes, and I and I try to get students to imagine that the issues that are going on in Colonial America are on both sides of the Atlantic. Care to comment on that at all? Yeah,
1: the Sons of Liberty movement that started the American revolutionary progression grew out of a great disenchantment, both in Britain and colonial America, with a lot of the somewhat heavy-handed policies of George III's ministers. And John Wilkes, a couple of years before the Sons of Liberty got going, was already drawing great attention for standing up to authority even though he was being hit with libel charges for daring to critique the king um, for saying that he got the best terms for the empire uh, during the Treaty of Paris that ended the, the, the Seven Years' War. So Over the 1760s, there were a great number of exchanges between American and British patriots, as both sides called themselves. Indeed, the Wilkes Movement called itself oftentimes to be the Sons of Liberty as well. They believed that they were in a common struggle against despotism and for liberty.
2: I think one of my favorite historical quotes comes from uh, British historian J.G.A. Pocock, in one of his books, he said that the American colonialists were more British than the British themselves, and I almost fell out of my chair, but that was in defense of British liberties. So what was what was John Wilkes all about? Why Why is he holding the staff of liberty? Why did folks like on both sides of the Atlantic really become attracted to this guy?
1: One of the ironies of John Wilkes is that in many respects, he didn't really deserve all of the attention that he was getting. He was an attention seeker, a libertine. Much of the money that was being raised for him wound up paying off his personal debts that he'd largely uh, accumulated through travel and partying. But defending him seems to represent defending free speech to a lot of radical people in both Britain and the future United States. If they were to let him be imprisoned and locked away, it would have been a terrible symbolic blow to the whole movement.
2: And he's a great, uh, he, he brought up the argument that he represented a particular place in the provinces of, of Britain and and so the idea of representation pops up here uh, over and over again again on both sides of the atlantic that's um any comment on that
1: yeah this was the era that created democratization as we know it british people were no longer willing to accept that only a small minority of their own citizens got to vote for members of parliament colonists in the future United States were not willing to accept that a far away, mostly undemocratically elected parliament was going to make decisions for them. So yes, um, being uh, one of the the friends of freedom meant sticking up for the ability to help make common decisions and to mobilize mass movements so that that would in practice occur. So
2: so we get this Sons of Liberty, um, supporting the Wilk- Wilkites, so they kind of jump up on John Wilkes, but they have their own kind of navigation to perform. And, and I wondered if you could talk about how they navigated the, the political spectrum, both in, the, in, in colonial America and, and got their message heard in London loud and clear.
1: The Sons of Liberty, of course, mobilized in opposition to the Stamp Act, There actually already were a bunch of stamp acts in effect in Great Britain itself, but of course there was the principle of no taxation without representation that actually grew out of the British revolutionary tradition, and uh, British colonists in the New World had very much taken it to be their own. So the Sons of Liberty set out to do something very different from what preceding British movements had done. So most British clubs during the 18th century had remained proudly independent. Maybe they would sign uh, common petitions to authorities, but beyond that, they really weren't willing to mobilize together and coordinate their actions in support of a cause. The Sons of Liberty, by contrast, did. So by the end of 1765, Movements clear up and down the east coast from Portsmouth, New Hampshire in the north to uh, Savannah, Georgia down in the south were coordinating with one another. So this made British people keenly aware of just how broad the opposition to the Stamp Act was, and it led to the Stamp Act being repealed in a short matter of months by February of 1766.
2: Uh, one great victory uh, for colonial Americans, but it 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 didn't lead to I, I guess uh, supplanting or or making colonial Americans feel heard. Um, so there's this mass mobilization movement, uh, I think you call it a a movement model in one of your chapters where they begin to boycott, British goods and and I think a lot of people are familiar with that, but I think we should rehash it. It's your book, and I think you you clearly state what's going on.
1: Sure. So the British Parliament did repeal the Stamp Act, but they also, to go along with it, passed a declaratory act saying that they could make regulations for the colonies at any point they wished to in the future, and they utilized that act um, in 1768 when the Townsend Acts that concerned duties on tea, glass, paint, and a whole series of different imported products were passed and feeling like they still weren't being heard and were being dictated to, a new boycott movement arose. So there had been uh, some boycotting that went along with the anti-Stamp Act movement in 1765 to 66, but now that became the central activity this led to most of the towns and acts uh, a couple of years later being repealed, but with the famous exception of the tax on tea, which, of course, by 1773 would lead to the Boston Tea Party and then um, the slippery slope towards the American Revolution.
2: I, I want to say that this um, movement model that that you discuss becomes a real. F- thing on, in Europe, on the other side. Uh, in fact, with uh, Britain's first colony, Ireland. And the Irish kind of pick up on some of what the Americans are doing during this time and, and also during the American Revolution. What, what is going on in, in Ireland? What are the conditions there that uh, led Irish to go, hmm?
1: So, The Irish movement develops amidst the war of the American Revolution. So Ireland had been part of the British monarchy for centuries, and it had been under uh, a piece of British legislation known as Ponying's Law. That allowed the British Parliament, and for that matter, also the British monarch, if he wanted to, to veto any piece of legislation that it passed. So they were essentially subservient. And much like in Great Britain, only about 1% of the population, a small subclass of Protestant landowners, actually got the right to vote. So after the war of the American Revolution began, a militia movement called the Volunteers mobilized in Ireland and wound up bringing tens of thousands of people together uh, nominally to to contest the possibility of a joint franco-spanish invasion since remember after 1778 they had both joined the american side in the war but after the war died down the volunteers became focused on legislative independence for Ireland which they actually did achieve, and then parliamentary reform, which for a combination of reasons they did not.
2: Well, I, I look at Ireland. There's something that you wrote in the book that I that I think is important. Um, that whenever there was an imperial war, uh, imperial war, at, when, whenever those cropped up, Ireland always seemed to be ouch, hurting. You know, uh, I think you wrote that they were affected. Uh, more severe more severely than British or the British people themselves. And I'm wondering why that is. Why is Ireland and, and I recognize it in when I do my studies and I do my research and I, I always recognize this complaint from Ireland, but what what caused Ireland to be economically harmed every time an imperial war came up? Ireland was part of a network
1: of imperial trade. And especially when war between Britain and France broke out, this led to a severe contraction. So that in turn caused large unemployment in Dublin and also growing dissatisfaction across the country. Um, the, The Catholic majority had felt that their rights had been stripped away unfairly, and indeed many of them had been dispossessed, particularly during the 17th and early 18th century of their ancestral property rights. So when opportunities came along to try and get at least some more justice, and as we'll see with the United Irishmen, even to rebel and perhaps join a coalition against Great Britain, many Irish people were happy to do so.
2: Uh, You make a mention in the book that Arguments made for free trade existed in Ireland during this time. Um, Any comments on that?
1: So this was a point in time in which Ireland did not have unmitigated free trade across the British Empire. So the system literally was set up so that Great Britain would uh, have a larger share of imports coming to it. And if Ireland wasn't going to engage in smuggling and breaking the rules, though oftentimes in practice they did, they were essentially getting uh, secondhand helpings of the, the goods that were coming in. So many Irish patriots, if they were going to remain within the British Empire, wanted the empire to run on a more equitable basis than what had existed up until that time.
2: I'm um, um... Just fascinated by what you write about the uh, volunteer militia movement in Ireland, and the dichotomy of you know Protestant landowners uh, who had settled in Ireland, uh, and then the Catholic majority. Um, and I'm wondering if how that kind of played out during the American Revolution and just beyond, that I guess that Catholic Protestant conflict.
1: Yeah. On the one hand, the conflict remained strong. There were ancestral antagonisms that people had grown up with. But what also is fascinating, particularly about the volunteer movement during the American Revolution, is that some of those divides started to be surmounted. That in several areas, there's evidence of widespread Irish catholic integration into the volunteers serving alongside the protestants so in that this was the era of enlightenment in which many people were advocating for getting beyond the old religious differences that had caused so many wars of religion in the past it seemed possible that ireland in the future at least if some of the discriminatory laws were repealed, might be able to work towards a common future, perhaps as United Irishmen, eh, as the movement of the 1790s, which very much was trying to bring liberal Protestants together with the the, the Catholics, became known.
2: So you're looking at these Friends of Freedom here, um, and and you're locating them all along the... Atlantic both sides of the pond and I found one common thread throughout all of these whether it's in France whether it's in England whether it's in uh, colonial America Ireland and that has to do with abolitionism Um, people are very concerned about the slave trade and um, uh, can you begin talking about that for us here
1: So abolitionism in many respects was the most radical movement of the era. So the Sons of Liberty in 1765 started out mostly talking about their ancestral rights as freeborn Englishmen. It was only over the course of the revolutionary era that more and more people started to think in terms of universalism, of there being certain core rights, including a right to personal freedoms, that ought to apply to all of the people throughout the world. So abolitionism gets going, at least as a concerted popular movement. Granted, people had been talking about how it might, in theory, be a a good idea since the early 18th century, but um, no one before the lead up to the American Revolution had tried to bring these ideas into reality. So amidst the American Revolution, the first abolition start occurring at the state level in places like Vermont and Massachusetts, and then in Great Britain, there becomes a movement against the Atlantic slave trade, which they think is going to be the first key step in at least making slavery somewhat less terrible and perhaps eventually moving towards the abolition of slavery entirely.
2: I'm uh, reminded of a of a of another book uh, that was written by Nicholas Frickman, uh, where he was talking about uh, uh, mutiny in the age of Atlantic revolutions. Uh, there was mutinies everywhere in on all these navies French navies, Spanish navies, uh, British navies. Uh, and one of the one of the quips that he makes in in his book is that there must be something in the water talking about the Atlantic. And I go, oh, yeah, it's called slaves. (laughs) The whole slave trade is there. And sailors talk, man. Um, And I wondered um, how much of this abolitionism is being uh, spread throughout the Atlantic because sailors, well, they sail and they see things.
1: Sailors are definitely a very important conduit in spreading every single movement that shows up in this book on the one hand there were romantic views of sailors lives that made them seem freer at least in the geographic sense that they got to see so many different places and experience so many different things but also they oftentimes lived terrible lives on board the ship Subject to terrible discipline, particularly if they were in a Navy. And of course, many of them spent part or all of their time on slave ships, um, particularly bringing slaves across in the the, the Middle Passage. And as abolitionist movements get going, many, uh, most famously Thomas Clarkson, one of the key British abolitionists, Uh, goes around to the ports and collects their stories works with them to come up with those famous drawings of slave ships that you often see reproduced in textbooks or, or elsewhere. So, yes, abolitionism, at least in part, was very much a movement of the the common sailors working alongside many of the intellectuals of the era.
2: Um, I'm Joe Kralder. I'm with the New Books Network talking with uh, Micah Alpa and his uh, new book, which is pretty fabulous People, it's called uh, Friends of Freedom, the Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Um, I, I, and I, I don't want to belir the point, but um, there's a lot of religious folks that, or I should say evangelicals or evangelical clerics, come out in support of abolitionism. You've got uh, uh, the Methodist founders, you've got the Unitarians, you've got New Light Presbyterians, um you know they're kind of all over the place. They're all, they're on it, and and they go to places like Bristol and Liverpool and London, and and they're pontificating for quite a long time. And the whole idea of manumissions or freeing one's slaves, I mean that I, I, even Jefferson makes note of this. Washington makes note of this. Uh, any comments on this?
1: Abolition absolutely started out as a religious cause. The Quakers, most famously, from absolutely. Yeah, yeah. From the, the late 17th century, really, onwards, um, first became more and more disquieted, as they said, about the practice of slavery. Even though, especially in Pennsylvania, um, where many of them congregated, slavery was still legal and they oftentimes still owned them themselves. But first, the Quakers turned against participating in the slave trade. And this was a difficult step because they disproportionately uh, were composed of merchants themselves. The Barclays Banking Empire, for instance, was started out by Quakers. And then by just before the War of the American Revolution, they forbid their own members from owning slaves whatsoever. So in a lot of respects, the different evangelical movements of the first Great Awakening we're trying to catch up with what the the Quakers were already doing. And they were doing this in part because it was such a dramatic shift from traditional Christian thinking. So, even though the Bible actually in several places says that it's okay to keep slaves. If you look back in the the Old Testament's uh, book of Leviticus, or actually a couple places in the New Testament as well, um, the, the Quakers brought to the forefront the idea of, as you do unto the least of my brothers, so you do unto me. And this became a way of showing what was revolutionarily different about their own perspective, and then increasingly got picked up by the different politically revolutionary movements of the age.
2: We, I think we see um, the abolitionist movement in, in England. We were very familiar with it when after the American Revolution in the United States. But let's talk about abolitionism in France Uh, because it's pretty potent and powerful and something I learned while reading your book, and and I hope you can speak to it now.
1: Sure. France was a relatively late starter in the movement. They only had a handful of Quakers. Indeed, Protestantism wasn't even legal there until 1788. But in that same year, the Société des Amis des Noirs, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks, was founded And it brought together many prominent intellectuals and many aspiring politicians who would be elected to the Estates General that began the following spring in 1789. So this was actually the first organization that key figures like the Count of Mirabeau who was one of the uh, most strident supporters of the Third Estate's cause in 1789, and later radicals like Jacques-Pierre Brissot and Maximilien Robespierre uh, really um, got their start with uh, organized politics. And it's a curious movement in that, on the one hand, most of what it was trying to do Was put on the back burner by the early National Assembly because there was um, so much pro commercial sentiment um, to try and keep the slave system going, since after all, France already was in the financial crisis that had started the French Revolution in the first place. But nevertheless, the Friends of the Blacks continued to agitate and they helped cause a political breakdown out in the colonies, particularly in Saint-Domingue, modern-day Haiti, that within two years, by 1791, helped incite the start of the Haitian Revolution.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
2: uh, we'll, we'll certainly get that get to that um i'm i'm looking at this uh comte de mirabeau or bow well, excuse me mirabeau and giving a Three and a half hour speech before Jacobans. I think it was 1790, 1791, yeah. somewhere in there um, Didn't move anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mostly he doesn't move many people because there is, as you point just pointed out, there's there's this weight to the to money um, and and finances and it, and you look at uh, the colony, which is now ha- Haiti. Um, And the most successful colony they have in terms of the amount of money it brings into the French coffers. And uh, I think of of any historian, I'm I'm being very honest here, you do a massively awesome job talking about the amount of money that was necessary for France to operate and therefore the importance of uh, Haiti. And yet people showing up in Haiti wearing that tricolor cockade and then they're in Haiti at the same time writing these most repressive (laughs) measures possible to keep Haiti going. I'm hoping you can talk about that.
1: Yeah, the French Revolution created an incredible amount of polarization. So on the one hand, you had the Friends of the Blacks but then on the other side you had a lobbyist group known as the the club massiac that organized in paris and soon started raising large amounts of money at the big slaving ports like nantes and bordeaux and out in the colonies as well trying to tell the estates general and the national assembly members that nothing should change that any changes any liberalization would cause a fatal breakdown in the colonies that essentially whites needed to have every single prerogative that they could come up with over, um, not just slaves, but even free black people in order to stop a system from breaking down in which, at least in Haiti, there were about 10 slaves for every single free white person. Eh.
2: I'm Joe Crowder with the New Books Network, talking with uh, historian Micah Alpaw, book, Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. And uh, I want to get back to the to the French Revolution before we go off to, to Haiti. Or maybe I should do Haiti first. I don't know. Uh, but I guess in the... Let's start with... The, it's so complicated when we try to explain to students in a survey course what the heck is going on in France. Why don't you give us the... Uh, Jacobins are and, and how, as you put it, they steered things toward what happens in 1794 known as the terror. And it's the reason why everybody sees the French Revolution dripped in blood and guts.
1: Sure. So the origins of the Jacobins were as what was known as the Breton Club that organized during the Estates General at Versailles to push for the most radical solutions they could manage. They were a key group both in establishing the National Assembly as the sovereign legislature and in pushing for the abolition of feudalism uh, after the night or on and then after the night of August 4th, 1789. But by the time the October days happened and the National Assembly moved to Paris along with the king, They had mostly stopped meeting eh, and I wasn't sure what their future was going to be. But in November, an address arrived from the London Revolution Society, a pretty peripheral group in British parliamentary reform politics that said that they could see the aurora of a beautiful day when the two nations that had unfortunately been rivals could set aside their differences and pursue a common vision of liberty. And this produced great applause in the the National Assembly. And they they wrote back to London saying that, yes, they did want to pursue closer connections. And it was over the following days that a Société de la Révolution, using the same name as the London Revolution Society, was founded in Paris. And only a couple of months later did it change its name to the better known Societe des Amis de la Constitution, the Society of the Friends of the Constitution, better known by the name of the venue in which it held its sessions, the Jacobin Monastery. So the club became the main caucus for radical members of the assembly, and soon it began accepting affiliations from different towns and even villages across the provinces. The only rule was that each town, whether large or small, could only have one Jacobin affiliate so that there wouldn't be different competing local factions. And over the following few years, this became the most powerful and largest organization outside of the government itself so that when the revolution fell into new crises after the king, for instance, attempted to flee the country um, during 1791's flight to Varennes, they mobilized, uh, demanding to, to know what had happened. And especially after war broke out in 1792, they came to oftentimes demand his ouster. So by the time the first republic is declared in August and September 1792, the Jacobins now are the most powerful organization in the country, but they start to suffer from internal divisions. There became different irreconcilable viewpoints, most notably between the Girondin faction, which were mostly composed of free trade liberals and those who became known as the Jacobins, who wanted to see basically proto-socialist legislation, particularly over foodstuffs, enacted. And this rivalry would lead to the Girondins being ousted from the National Convention in early June, to their being killed, many of them on the guillotine in October, and then between... Around then, so fall 1793 and July of 1794, a period that became known as the Terror, uh, commenced in which the Jacobins both continued to go after counter-revolutionaries, but also went after many of their former club members that they developed disagreements with.
2: Um, yeah, let's talk about Bordeaux, um, the, the free trade guys in Bordeaux. That's a It's a trading port. And it's got the Atlantic right there. They've traded for years, even during wartime, sometimes with, with England, um, if we go far back enough. Uh, wine, of course. Um, and they have a seat at the table. But I'm, I'm wondering how uh, the Gironde and the Jacobin kind of, I, in the beginning, weren't they like, you know, pals?
1: Absolutely. So. Their leader was Jacques Pierre Brissot, one of the founding members of the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. And um, he and many of his fellow future Girondins were working quite closely, indeed, were oftentimes good personal friends with Robespierre, Danton, and a lot of other people who remained hardcore Jacobins. But this free trade perspective became quite controversial particularly because of the continuing food shortages that Paris was recurrently hit with during the French Revolution. Robespierre was going out of his way to recruit the Paris sans culottes uh, the, the artisans and sometimes also the working poor uh, to, to be the allies of the Jacobins. And this meant dealing with the issues that concerned them the most. And nothing was bigger than trying to get people uh, the necessities of life as they saw it.
2: I'm, I'm going to take a, just a brief detour here. Where did you learn to um, s- speak, read, learn French? Where did that come from?
1: I was actually an odd case because I first got interested in French history with that class I took at Northern Arizona back in spring 2001. And then only then did I go about picking up the language. I had taken a couple of years of Spanish in high school and wasn't really any good at it, but I forced myself through the introductory French courses at NAU, and then I was lucky to be able to do two study abroads. The first, a semester, or excuse me, a summer after my junior year, which I did up in Ansi uh, in the French Alps. And then for my last semester of college, I was an exchange student in Paris. And by that point in time, I at least got good at reading French, particularly 18th century French, though being a late language learner, my French grammar is still pretty terrible.
2: Well, I've tried to read the old handwriting of some French politicians, and all I can say is... (laughs) <laughs> especially when they misspell words and i'm stuck i'm like what is this well they they don't cross their t's or something it's crazy
1: Eighteenth century french is fascinating um, when you go back through the archives and that everything is either perfectly and beautifully written if they're trying to make it into an official document but if you're looking at police records or just people's notes they're oftentimes almost impossible to decipher.
2: (laughs) Glad you said it. And that's what makes this, um, I think, this book extremely valuable. You're in the archives in France. You're in the archives throughout England. Uh, I think also Scotland. I'm not sure if you went that far north. Yes. Um, And you're in the archives in Ireland. You're in the archives throughout the United States. People, ladies and gentlemen, this is an archival marvel. Uh, You've got to pick up this book. It's so well-researched. Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Micah Alpa, you're doing incredible uh, here. Let's turn our attention to to Haiti a little bit. No, before I go to Haiti, uh, you made a brief mention of a political faction uh, during the French Revolution known as the Mountain, Montagnards, I guess, I'm... My French is terrible. Um, And they were called the mountain because they stood or sat in these high bleachers, way up high. What were they all about?
1: So the Montagnards were what Robespierre's faction became known as by late 1793, early 1794. And actually, they were the last of several different radical groups to sit up there we actually get our modern political designations of left and right from where the high bleacher seats were with the radicals on one side and the arch conservatives on the other. So if you go back to the first National Assembly from 1789 to 91, you had the Jacobins on the radical side and uh, Noble and clerical, uh, priests, um, who were deputies sitting on the the conservative side. But by the time you get to the National Convention, first it's the Jacobins and the Girondins. The Girondins now becoming, in effect, the conservatives, even if they hadn't started out that way. And then by the time you get to uh, early 1794, the right side of the bleachers are conspicuously uh, denuded of people um, in that Most people who were really disagreeing with the the, the Jacobins were either dead or in some form of internal exile. But still, there was a big distinction between the mountain and what was known as either the plain or, in a term that perhaps unfortunately has come back into our political lexicon, the swamp. So most members of the National Convention still didn't see themselves as hardcore Jacobins, but... They were being to some degree convinced and to some degree coerced by Robespierre and his followers to go along with the Jacobins' radical program. But they actually only did so for a few months. After all, it was legislators from the plain together with a few breakaway Jacobins who wound up overthrowing Robespierre on the 9th of Thermidor, year two, late July 1794.
2: It's just fascinating to see uh, the split, not only between right and left, and as you point out, created here in revolutionary France, but who and what they stood for. Um, so the Gironde, the Bordeaux folks would be on you know the right side, demanding free trade, whereas on the left, the radicals looking at a more socialistic, maybe even communistic sort of Paris communes are famous uh, uh, outlook. And uh, uh, it's just amazing that that's still true to this day.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, The French Revolution created so much of our modern political language. And even though the Jacobins still were a fair distance from the socialists of the 19th century or the communists of the 20th century, those later groups would very much look back upon what Robespierre and his followers were trying to do as a, a concrete historical example of what might be possible.
2: Um, I'm speaking with uh, Micah Alpa. his great book, Out, um, Friends of Freedom, Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. I want to turn to Haiti. Do you have your book in front of you by any chance? I do. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a paragraph, I think that is very well-written, super instructional. It's on page 263. See if I can turn there too. Um, I would love for you to read that to our listening audience, if you could. From its early stages,
1: saint revolution unfolded on racial terms. Upon news crossing the Atlantic of the Bastille's fall, partisans distributed tricolor cockades to everyone who had a white face, with some refusing to wear it shot or knived. In Petikoav, a judge, quote, long suspected of favoring the mixed-blood caste, was lynched. Anyone advocating mulatto rights risked the same. Without irony, colonial whites, quote, haughtily spoke of liberty before the slaves and bitterly declaimed against privileges, prejudices, and despotism. Jean de Couleur, which means freemen of color, were banned from wearing the the cockade. François Raymond, the Paris activist relative, watched white colonists with bemusement, noting, quote, the blacks, who, quote, understand that the cockade is for liberty and equality, wanted to rise up. Whites accused, arrested, and hanged several alleged conspirators of color. Rumors, incorrectly, spread of Deputy Moreau de Saint-Marie betraying the colonial cause by proposing slavery's abolition in the National Assembly. The revolution opened new, often terrifying possibilities for a strained and unequal colonial order.
2: Uh, There's so much in that paragraph, and and it unfolds as you go along, but that this There's a civil war that's about to come. There's not two sides. It's not just slaves against whites. It's whites against whites. It's some mulattoes, some uh, militia made up of mulatto slaves uh, and um, slaves themselves. There's, There's so many different factions that are happening here in Haiti. And you do such a marvelous job of deconstructing it for us. I'm wondering if you can help the reader understand how the information of the French or what's happening in France during the French Revolution actually arrives in Saint-Domingue and then uh, what the different factions do with this news. Sure. So people in the colonies are
1: passionately interested in what's happening back in France. But the problem, of course, is that it usually takes between three and four months for information to get to them, and it oftentimes doesn't reach them directly. So sometimes they're getting rumors of what's happening arriving from other islands where a ship might have come in or might have gotten better winds than uh, the, the ships that had left France headed for, for them did. So people are hearing about the events through common sailors, talking about what they had seen, through letters arriving, Newspapers, official government documents, etc. And as soon as this news arrives in the port towns, it's typically on everybody's lips. And down at the port docks, there were large numbers of slaves as well, helping to unload cargo. And in the broader port communities, it was customary for white masters to speak without noticing if their slaves were even present. So just about all groups knew of the big changes happening. And of course, that included France's declaration of the rights of man and citizen, which declared that all men were born and remained free and equal in rights without explicitly saying anything on the subject of slavery. So this both led many slaves to believe that perhaps they were even already free but that their masters, for their own reasons, wouldn't tell them. And it also led freemen of color, which, who were about as numerous as whites were in Sandomang during this era, to believe that they should have equal rights of representation to those which the whites themselves possessed. The whites, however, wanted to do anything that they could to stop this from happening, they were willing to use violence. There were cases of lynchings against free men of color trying to exercise their rights in certain areas. The very question of whether men of color would get the right to vote remained contested in the National Assembly for two years. It didn't decide that they definitively did have voting rights until mid-1791 And even after that, there were a lot of delay tactics used to stop it from actually going into effect. Plus, the the whites felt under so much stress from all of this that they didn't even trust their fellow white colonists, especially in other parts of the colony. So the colony divided by regions into the north, west, and south. And these soon came to loggerheads, particularly over whether the regional assemblies had autonomy or if they were subject to common orders going out from the colonial governor. So these groups by early 1791 are nearly in civil war conditions. There are revolts amongst freemen of color trying to get their political rights as well. And then in late 1791, all of that gets superseded by a massive slave revolt that begins along the northern plain of uh, Saint-Domingue. And essentially, that civil war is never resolved. Um, And slaves actually do manage to pick off different groups within all of those different coalitions as they fought for greater liberty over the subsequent years. Haiti actually would not become an independent country until 1804.
2: Uh, You you speak at length about uh, an insurrection led by Vincent Oj. Am I pronouncing that right? That's right. Um, And he does this, um, I I would say, putting it mildly, a fair turnabout. Let's talk about that guy.
1: So Oj was an elite, free person of color. He was about a quarter African origin himself. If you look at a drawing of him that survived. Um, you would essentially see him as passing as white today. But because of his lineage, he was left out eh, of many social opportunities. And in late 1789, he goes to the Club Masiac, the main lobbying organization for the planters' rights. And basically offers to deliver the freemen of colors support to this organization so that they can stop changes from being made to colonial slavery but the club messiac turns him down um eh, basically saying that they don't want to associate with his kinds so oj then flips sides he gets friendly with the amis des noir including many prominent uh members of the Jacobins and the National Assembly, and then a number of months later goes first to London, meeting with abolitionists there, and then surreptitiously hops a ship to the Caribbean, even though French authorities were uh, unclear of his intentions and had sent letters to Bordeaux, Nantes, and other port towns um, telling local authorities there to refuse him passage. So after OJ makes it to Saint-Domingue, he organizes a rebellion of freemen of color, eh, trying to get them their political rights at the point of uh, sword and bayonet. He is forced to flee over the border into Spanish Santo Domingo. The Spanish actually still controlled about two thirds of the island, but he's soon captured and returned to French authorities who, in order to make an example out of him, break him on the wheel and subject him to terrible tortures before he's finally finished off and executed. So this is seen as being one of the key origins of the Haitian Revolution, because the slaves could see just how bad things were getting. So even freemen of color, who oftentimes did own slaves themselves, were being subjugated to terrible conditions by the whites. And now there didn't seem like a whole lot that was going to stop further, still more terrible revolts from occurring. So all sides tried then to get what they could under the terrible circumstances.
2: I think you made note of, uh, about 85 planters in Haiti, um, uh, They travel to France. I I think you put that they fled to France, and they're looking for French help. Um, But when they arrive, I think it's late August, seventeen ninety. Maybe they arrive September, October. Um, But they're the revolution has proceeded in such a fashion in France that they're just out and out rebuffed. I mean, kind of left out in the
1: cold. Yeah, politics changes. Quickly and indeed, by 1794, France becomes the first empire um, in the entire Atlantic world to explicitly abolish slavery as a way of trying to bring the slaves back into line and getting them back to work, albeit in altered conditions on the plantations.
2: I'm speaking with Micah Alpa, and he's got a fantastic, superbly. Uh, Researched book, Friends of Freedom The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Micah, what's next for you? What are you working on? I'm currently finishing
1: up a new book project called The People's Revolution of 1789, taking a lot of the methods that I use in Friends of Freedom and focusing in on the pivotal first year of liberty in France. So it's a book that tries to bring together the pro- Parisian, provincial, and colonial revolutions into a more cohesive whole, and I hope a better narrative history than what anyone else has uh, attempted up to this point.
2: Uh, thank you, Micah. This is the New Books Network. You've been listening to Micah Alpa, Alpa, excuse me, uh, Friends of Freedom, the Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Micah, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe.